0: to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell.
1: And I'm Damian Gorday. Adam Feuerstein is out today.
0: It's Thursday, April 13th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week.
1: A judge's decision to overturn the FDA approval of a drug has massive implications for medicine in the U.S. Jeremy Levin, CEO of Ovid Therapeutics, joins us to explain why he believes it's the biggest threat to the biopharma industry in 50 years.
0: We'll also cover the biggest news in the week of biopharma, including an update from Moderna, dispatches from a trip to FDA headquarters, and who Bernie Sanders has in his sights next. But
1: first, a word from our sponsor. I'm Step Branded Content Editor, Jesse McQuarters, and today I'm joined by Sue Rosenthal, SVP of Life Sciences and Healthcare at New York City Economic Development Corporation to hear more about New York's robust life sciences capabilities. Sue, can you tell us what's been happening recently? It's such an exciting time. The venture capital community is focused more than ever on New York City-based life sciences startups with over a billion dollars in private investment just this past year. Jesse, that's almost 800% growth since 2016. The public sector is stepping up too. The city's investing over a billion dollars in life sciences innovation, workforce development, and infrastructure, which has sparked a life sciences boom here that gives new entrants access to space, capital, research, and talent. And how can people learn more? They can visit lifeside.myc,
2: L-I-F-E-S-C-I dot N-Y-C.
0: So, Damian, I think, you know, coming into this weekend, uh, we're about to kick off AACR, the Cancer Research Conference, and one of the biggest pieces of news there is going to be Moderna's update on its program partnered with Merck on a personalized cancer vaccine. But before we get there, Moderna actually had a Vaccines Day this past week and provided an update on its mRNA flu vaccine that seemed to sort of be yet the newest sort of maybe disappointment uh, in this program, at least for Wall Street. What happened?
1: Yeah, so Moderna is endeavoring to parlay its success in COVID-19 into making vaccines for annual flu shots that would be updated according to uh, science's best guess of the strain each year. And that has gone... Well, so the news that that Moderna uh, disclosed at its Vaccines Day was that an ongoing trial of its flu vaccine had not accrued enough cases to where they could say definitively that it was working or not at an interim look at data. So that's not that doesn't mean it failed and it's not necessarily a negative thing, but it does suggest that this is going to take longer than I think a lot of investors would have desired because the backdrop for everything that Moderna does at least in Wall Street's eyes is the rapidly dwindling revenue it's getting from that COVID-19 vaccine because demand has fallen off and and it's about to switch over to the commercial market. So this is a company that booked nearly twenty billion dollars in revenue in twenty twenty two, and is expected to come up with more, like five billion, or maybe slightly more, in twenty twenty three. So it's a massive drop off, and all eyes are kind of fixated on what can Moderna do to smooth that transition. And so, one thing, I, you know, I know you were paying attention to this as well. The company gave a financial projection saying basically that it can return, almost return to those heights of revenue by 2027 due solely to its respiratory vaccines business, which would be its vaccine for RSV, which I think is expected to win approval maybe in 2024. And then this flu vaccine, which struck me and I know it struck some other people as pretty ambitious, pretty optimistic Mm -hmm. look at the future of its business.
0: Yeah. And the range they gave for 2027 revenue was like $8 billion to $15 billion from its respiratory products franchise, which like a lot of people pointed out, that's a very big range. <laughs> it's just, you know, and, and beyond that, you, there is skepticism that they'll get there. And I think the skepticism is really interesting, particularly around the flu vaccine, because the argument seems to be Moderna's mRNA flu vaccine has to be, like, way better than the existing flu vaccines in order to make a big headway into the market. And right now, the immunogenicity data suggests it could be superior, particularly against the more common type of flu, influenza A. Um, But, you know, we didn't see the efficacy update from the Northern Hemisphere Phase 3 trial yet, so we have to see how that ends up shaking out. The other argument is, you know, from Moderna that because it can... Package these shots together—flu and COVID—and ultimately flu, COVID, RSV into one injection. The people are automatically going to want that instead of a seasonal flu shot every year uh, with the existing technology. But I was seeing some arguments that you know that that COVID vaccine demand, as you were just pointing out, is really falling off, and so who? is going to be the population who wants a regular COVID vaccine in order to sort of get that bundle of COVID and flu. So I think that's going to be really interesting. And, you know, if there can be an offering from both Moderna and Pfizer for a COVID plus flu injection, even if the flu part of it isn't that much better, will the fact that you get the protection against two circulating, you know, respiratory viruses be enough to move people over to an mRNA shot? I guess that's what we're going to have to see. And does it make you feel really bad to take it, whereas (laughs) maybe you don't feel so bad after a flu vaccine? I don't know.
1: And to your opening point about people looking forward to this weekend and the data at AACR, that kind of underscores, you know, a a lot of the focus at Moderna is on that, or the focus of people watching Moderna is on that personalized cancer vaccine program because it is the only late stage sort of uh, non-traditional vaccine that the company has going on. It's uh, efforts to turn mRNA into therapeutics is all in the earlier stages for chronic disease and rare diseases, despite the company's years of efforts there. And so the cancer vaccine data is both you know important for Moderna as a stock in that it sort of diversifies them away from, from these vaccine markets that, as we've said, can be very competitive and, and lower margin, but also kind of existentially because the company is still working, I think, to definitively establish that mRNA as a technology has medical and scientific promise outside of these vaccine areas. So this has been a big week for the company. And this weekend, I think, will be important as well.
0: Elsewhere in biotech, a big stock mover here on Thursday morning as we're recording is Sarepta. We've, of course, talked a lot about this company and its efforts in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, we don't have Adam on the podcast, but I believe it is uh, some of Adam and another colleague's reporting that is affecting the stock this morning. Um, maybe just give us a quick um, look at you know what is affecting Sarepta stock today, Damien, and then we'll save a, you know a deeper dive for next week when Adam's back.
1: Sure, yeah, it is a little awkward to to do this in his absence. But uh, the, the story on Thursday <laughs> morning from, from Adam Forestine and our colleague Jason Mast is basically, what's well, an update, a deeper dive on the kind of will-they-won't-they they situation we've talked about on this podcast before with respect to Sarepta's gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, whose path through the FDA has been kind of confusing. First, there wasn't going to be a public advisory committee, and then suddenly there was, and everybody's tempted to read whatever tea leaves that might have as to its approval, And so an update on on tea leaf reading is Adam and Jason reported based on people close to the situation that basically there were reviewers within the FDA's gene therapy department who had concluded that Sarepta didn't have enough evidence to actually apply for accelerated approval. But then Peter Marks, their boss, a high-ranking FDA official, said, no, yes, they do, and intervened. That was last year. And then most recently... Some group of reviewers within the FDA had concluded that they were going to reject that application and and tell SREP it needed to gather more evidence um, in order to win approval for this gene therapy. And then again, Marks intervened and said, no, we're going to schedule this public advisory committee, which is slated for next month. Now, yeah, I can't wait to talk to Adam about a lot of the the details of this, and, and we will do so next week. But I think the reason the stock is moving today is people are inferring that thus there is you know, a, a groundswell within the FDA deep state that wants to reject this therapy. And that's the effect we're seeing on surreptive stock. And I think probably the magnitude of that effect more reflects investors' skittishness about this whole endeavor rather than just, you know, some confidence that they know what's going to happen within the FDA. So this has been a preview for next week's podcast. <laughs> Speaking of the FDA and its bureaucracy, Meg, you spent some time with the uh, the top of that bureaucratic Pyramid, um, Robert Califf, the commissioner, (laughs) former guest to this podcast. Um, I know you had a wide ranging interview. What did people kind of fixate on after the fact? Or what were the the key messages that that Califf gave that seemed to resonate with uh, with folks watching?
0: Yeah. well you know so we talked with we talked for 30 minutes I went down to Silver Spring I'd actually never been to Fda headquarters before um it was lovely it was a spring day and like the trees were flowering and there were daffodils everywhere it was just gorgeous but it was funny because they still don't have like a ton of their staff back on campus so it was like fairly you know unpopulated but um it was a really nice visit we have the entire uh, interview posted on CNBC.com. people can go watch and and read the story um that's I wrote to go along with it what was so funny was well, was, you know, I told everybody at CNBC, you know, what the topics were. And one of them was the new obesity drugs. And I was on four times on Tuesday talking about the interview and four times the shows just wanted <laughs> to talk about the obesity. drugs. I mean, there's just tremendous interest in these medicines from a societal point of view and an investor point of view. I get it. Um, you know, and he did have some interesting things to say about them. So these are the Novo Nordisk drugs, um, Ozempic, which is approved for type 2 diabetes and Wigovi, which is approved for obesity and the Lilly drug, Mounjaro, which is currently only approved for type 2 diabetes, and the same um, compound is awaiting approval in obesity as well. And, you know, Dr. Califf, as we know, is a cardiologist. He did talk about this a little bit with us on the podcast when he was with us about a month ago. Um, you know, he's a lot of hope for these medicines, but he is really looking forward to seeing that outcomes trial this summer uh, from Novo Nordisk. He didn't say that one in particular, but what he wants to see is that, you know, actually losing weight for people who don't have type 2 diabetes, does that translate into protective health effects in terms of what this trial looking at uh, is heart attacks and strokes. Um, And so that's going to be really interesting. But I think one thing he said um, that I thought was um, pretty fascinating was I was asking him about the idea that you have to take these drugs in perpetuity to sustain weight loss. Um, And he sort of took issue with that. You know, he said, "I it's early days. And yes, so far, the Studies have shown that if you stop taking the drug, the weight comes back on. But he said maybe this hasn't been combined well enough with behavioral interventions or or things like that. And he compared it with smoking cessation, where people have felt like they just couldn't do something but then when it's combined with clinical management um, you know and, and a medicine then it helps people um, sort of get over that hump so that was kind of an interesting take cuz you know the conventional wisdom about these is you have to take them forever and that's one of the things Wall Street likes about them so much <laughs> um you know another thing we talked about is I was there the day that the FDA pulled McKenna the premature labor Drug from the market, and you know, he said it, it wasn't a controversial decision for FDA because of the data. They, he said the confirmatory trial was so clear that the drug should not stay on the market, but it was, you know, a sad decision because there isn't another drug out there for this, and maternal mortality is so high in the United States. And he said this is an area that the drug industry really hasn't focused on, and he put it up there with again smoking cessation and um, non-addictive pain medicines as areas where the drug industry is not producing. And so we talked a little bit about the incentives that FDA and others can try to create there. And he said it was something he was thinking about a lot. And he brought up, you know, the orphan drug market and the cancer drug market as areas where the incentives have worked incredibly well. And could some of that sort of magic be sprinkled in these other areas of need? So I think that's something to stay tuned for. I don't know how quickly that will manifest, but um, obviously huge areas of public health need. And finally, you know, I asked him about his tweet And, you know, his tweet, who knows who tweets actually for the (laughs) FDA commissioner. I did not confirm he is tweeting himself, unlike Scott Gottlieb, who I think did tweet himself as commissioner. I'm not sure. Um, But, you know, when they approved the -the over-the-counter version of Narcan, which is the opioid overdose reversal drug. Um, you know, he tweeted out that, you know, the FDA hoped that the sponsor would make it accessible quickly and price it, you know, in an accessible way. And I thought that was really interesting, because there's always this idea that FDA has to be so removed from drug pricing. Um, So I said, you know, why, why did you do that? And he was like, yes, FDA, you know, isn't directly involved in drug pricing, but he said they have an indirect role. And quote, we have a bully pulpit to make the public aware and put some pressure on. He sort of quoted himself. He said this is in the public domain. So, you know, he he just referenced it. He said the way drug prices are set is by what you can get minus the shame factor. And so I was <laughs> like, are you going to use that in a bigger way? And he said, you know, the short answer is yes. He also noted that the drug industry obviously is incredibly important. So there's a fine line to walk between totally shaming them and um you know trying to put some pressure to make sure things don't get out of control and he did note he thinks there is a you know imbalance right now in some areas speaking of a bully pulpit Damien stat broke some news this week uh about another bully in the pulpit for the <laughs> drug industry uh Bernie Sanders
1: that's right so after last month's Well, I was reaching for an adjective. It was a little disappointing, but it had had its theatrical (laughs) moments, and and I think it did its purpose. (laughs) After last month's Senate help hearing featuring Moderna CEO Stefan Boncel discussing, defending uh, the company's decision to raise the price of its COVID-19 vaccine, the next people filling that chair will be representatives of the three major insulin manufacturers, Eli Lilly, Novo Nordisk, Uh, And Sanofi, my colleagues Rachel Kors and John Wilkerson reported basically that that Bernie is putting out the call for the insulin CEOs, which will be interesting in the context of if you recall the last hearing, there was some misplaced frustration by some of the senators about the cost of medicines that Moderna did not make, including cancer drugs and especially insulin. But also, this moment is quite curious because those three companies have, uh, I think, in the order that I recited them, promised to lower the cost of their older insulin products after years of criticism and investigation into the lockstep increases in those prices, despite the fact that they were the products were all made by three ostensibly competing companies. But they've already made those pronouncements public. So this shouldn't or likely wouldn't be, won't be, as accusatory and charged as it would have been had they not, but maybe more be an accountability hearing. And, you know, I imagine that Senator Sanders or others will ask, why now? Why, after we've spent a a decade or so uh, criticizing these companies for these pricing practices, did they make the decision? And also, how did they come to make the decision within weeks of one another? Um, And what are the ins and outs of, of the insulin market? And I think, you know, in this conversation, maybe more so than in the one with Stefan, will we get more of what the drug industry often points to, which is the effect of middlemen and insurers on the sort of complicated Rube Goldberg machine that usually ends with regular people paying more for the medicines they need. We're often fixated on the drug industry's role in that process. But the insulin market, when when kind of itemized and dissected, is a lot more complicated than just that. So this might actually be a more substantive in terms of both policy and detail hearing than the last one. I say that now, but I'm sure around hour three, as one of our venerable elected officials is asking about God knows what, I will uh, I will be forced to eat those words. But for now... <laughs>
0: I wonder if they'll actually call anybody from the pharmacy benefit manager world or if it will be focused on those three insulin makers. Uh, And, you know, it will be like the Heather Brush moment with EpiPen where she tries to explain the system and, you know, then you don't get to ask the questions of the middlemen. And, you know, there's there's blame to go around. right? It's not just they always try to point the finger at each other as if to say we're completely innocent. Um, So it'll be very interesting to watch. And a quick note before we bring you our interview with Jeremy Levin about the uh, legal. Quandary over the drug Mifepristone. We recorded that interview on Wednesday midday. Uh, later that evening, um, a panel of three judges on the appeals court uh, came out with a decision essentially saying that the judge's decision, um, completely overturning FDA approval of this medicine, uh, couldn't stand because the approval was made too long ago. Uh, but it did uphold some of the restrictions that the judge imposed um, on this medicine. Uh, and this legal process is going to continue. So um, the industry's concerns over its larger effects still stand.
1: On Friday night, a federal judge in Texas did something that has never been done before. He issued a decision that overturned the FDA approval of a medicine
0: mifepristone has been on the market for more than two decades and is part of a regimen used for medication abortion, which accounts for more than half of abortions in the U.S. And has become a focus of anti-abortion advocates since the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year.
1: That decision has implications that reach beyond this one drug. The biopharma industry and legal scholars argue that it could erode the FDA's authority on a much broader scale. More than 500 executives and investors from the industry signed onto a letter this week to that effect, writing, quote, If courts can overturn drug approvals without regard for science or evidence or for the complexity required to fully vet the safety and efficacy of new drugs, any medicine is at risk for the same outcome as mifepristone.
0: Joining us now is one of the authors of that letter, Dr. Jeremy Levin. He's CEO of Ovid Therapeutics and the immediate past chair of the industry group Bio. Jeremy, welcome to the Read Out Loud.
2: Great to be with you guys. Thank you so much for having me. So starting on
1: Friday, what was your immediate reaction to seeing that ruling?
2: Damien, it was not a reaction of surprise. We had seen the filing some time ago. We knew what was going on. We know the track record of this judge. Nevertheless, what was striking was the outcome of the ruling was so egregious in its content so out of line with anything that has been seen any, at any time, that we felt that it was absolutely imperative to jump on this and to express what was critically important for the industry. So look, we've been looking at this for about a year, we knew this was coming, it's come, and now we have to deal with it. And I think it has serious, serious consequences.
0: Well, let's talk about those. You know, are there specific legal points in the ruling that particularly worry you and the industry? Or is it really just the general precedent of a federal judge being able to overturn an FDA approval at all?
2: Meg, I think you have to start with the general. Each one of the points made in the judge's rulings, you could argue them one way or another. And I'll leave that to lawyers to argue. However, there is a fundamental and very broad issue that came out of this that without due process of evaluating science and medicine a judge in a very trivial way proceeded to dismiss decades of safety data and decades of approval that led to this drug being used there is that that general concept that a judge in a very peremptory fashion can do that or could do it and did it is in and of itself the most generally and most specifically damaging aspect the arguments that are going to go on are going to be around did those who filed the brief on behalf of the uh, different organization do they have standing that's one argument that'll be made we know that that's they certainly don't they picked they went and looked for a judge that would support them. There is one, he has a track record of this. So to essentially judicial tourism, looking for somebody that would say yes to their question. Then you have all sorts of other arguments. Were these drugs appropriately reviewed originally? Of course they were. And these are legal arguments which will be argued Now, probably in the review bodies, and then subsequently, I hope not, but it could easily get to the Supreme Court. I hope that at the end of the day, the simple fact that Congress mandated the FDA years ago to proceed with approvals by reviewing the safety, reviewing the efficacy of drugs, and then monitoring them afterwards. So... Meg, for me, it's that fact. Congress mandated the FDA, not some lone judge in Texas who expressed himself with a very clear political agenda.
1: So looking beyond the specifics of this ruling now that it has, and and also the future deliberations over it, as you mentioned, that could, could well go to the Supreme Court. Now that this precedent has been established, are there other approved medicines that seem to you to be most vulnerable if this stands, if this becomes something that is just part of the way courts rule from now on?
2: It's not just drugs. It's drugs, vaccines, and even devices. The principles underlying this particular ruling People will argue are only restricted to this one drug. That's not the case. If you listen to the chatter of these people, and I do because it's an important medical fact, you're seeing people who are talking about now, gosh, this will give them the opportunity to overturn vaccine approvals. Now imagine, just imagine for a minute that a group comes forward, goes to this or a similar judge, a very few but this is a particular one and makes a very similar argument about approvals of vaccines for children, for chickenpox, for mumps, for measles. You're facing a situation where if those are overturned, you're facing the situation that you could have epidemics in this country that you've never seen before. Well, we've seen them in the past. We thought we'd abolish them. (laughs) go one step further. Imagine that somebody decides that, oral contraception is something they oppose. And now they go and try and overturn that, go one step further than that. Imagine somebody decides that sickle cell is a restricted group of people and that we shouldn't be approving drugs for restricted classes of people, and they want to challenge it. We're talking about an upending of a system that is not based on medicine, but opens up the door to political attack on any medicine, let alone the immediate effect on millions of women who methapristan itself will has given benefit to
0: so right now we're in this kind of legal you know gray area because you know we're in a period where the decision has been stayed there have been conflicting decisions from two federal judges, but we don't know you know what's going to happen in the future, and so what is the industry going to do if this does stand? Let's say this goes up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court upholds the federal judge's decision and says, yeah, a federal judge can overturn drug approvals. How will that affect how the industry decides you know, where to spend its money in research and development, how much it costs to develop a drug, what kinds of drugs, you know, the, the industry and vaccines the industry considers mm-hmm. pursuing, um, and maybe even ingredients that go into drugs. I heard um, Jen Saki on her Sunday show mention, you know, drugs that use stem cells or, you know, other ingredients that some groups find problematic.
2: Perfectly correct. You've identified a key concern. The initial support for dealing with this has been incredibly universal. When we initiated the latter, there were a handful of assigners. Then it went across the industry. We have hundreds. Those people are, number one, left, right, Republican, uh, Democrat. So first of all, what gives me encouragement for the future is that it's all the various uh, constituents in this country. It's not one political party. So it gives you a clue about what you can do. The second is that very quickly, law firms stepped up to the case and filed briefs in support, amicus briefs, in support of opposition to this. So I believe that you're going to see not just one or two of these, you're going to see several of these actually be filed. You've already seen one from bio. You've already seen one from an industry organization. you have now going to see one from Congress. You've also seen one from individual CEOs, So there's going to be an entire legal strategy to oppose this. Equally well, I believe that Congress has the best interests of people in mind. They're going to have to step up. Congress, the White House, and the Senate will have to step up to this and assert their authority, which is essentially to define the mandate that they gave to the FDA as being rock-solid. We don't exactly know what is going to come out of this judge's ruling. We're going to find out very shortly, that's for sure. And at that moment, we'll define strategies to deal specifically with it. I believe there is overwhelming support in Congress, uh, even though not particularly articulated yet, but it will be for the primacy of the FDA. And what I believe is we're just going to focus on that.
1: I want to ask kind of an inside baseball question. You mentioned the open letter, which over the weekend when we first saw it, or at least when I first saw it, there were many executives from smaller biotech companies. And by Monday morning, the numbers had increased. And and among the new signatories was Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla. And I was curious, you know, what is the process of corralling, recruiting people who, as you mentioned, have disparate responsibilities and in some cases disparate ideologies uh, coming into this? How does, how does one get that critical mass of getting people in a highly regulated and generally conservative in a non-political but sort of business sense industry to put their names on something like this?
2: Damien, so important. Remember, this is not the first time we've endeavored to rally support. Sometimes you're able to get broader support. But let's go back to the first such event in the industry was uh, rallied around DACA. The second was that I can point to, which I think was quite significant, was small companies insisting and putting their names to this, insisting that approvals for vaccines for COVID be based solely upon FDA approval and not on any political considerations. And then again, after that, the the Russian invasion and ensuring that medicines were uh, secured for Ukraine. So there's a lot of efforts that have gone into various things. And we've done this, when I say we, it's a, it's a small handful of people who started doing it some time ago. This was Paul Hastings, myself, John Marigonori, Ted Love, uh, and also uh, Ron Cohen, recognizing that this was an essential part of our responsibilities as CEOs. Now, sometimes the large companies join in, sometimes they don't. In this instance, what occurred was very straightforward. Each one of us wrote to our colleagues in the large companies, giving them the opportunity out of respect to read what we, the smaller companies, were writing about. In the case of Pfizer, Albert Berler, who was in the Far East, stepped forward immediately and said that he recognized the threat that was Pertaining to the industry as a whole, and that the FDA's primacy was the absolutely the way to go, and as a consequence, he very quickly put his name to it. The same is applied to Alex Hardy at Genentech, and the same is applied to Chris Wiebacher at Biogen. But in each case, he, these are leaders who have hugely complex organizations. It's not a question of whether they are available to assess this or not. It's a question of do they feel that this is an imperative in the industry that they serve? And they obviously have legal constraints which are far different from the smaller companies, much larger shareholder bases. And they clearly make the judgment differently from the smaller companies who know the immediate threat to their livelihood comes from a ruling like this, which could devastate their ability to develop drugs. And the larger companies are a little different. By the way, I fully expect many others to sign on. It's merely a question of time. And we understand now that the role of CEOs across the industry is to weigh in, not in a partisan way. This is nothing partisan about this one. It's straight down the fairway. This is an issue which is aimed at the heart of the pharmaceutical and biotech industry. I'd go so far, Damien, as to say that this is the biggest threat to our industry in 50 years.
1: I was curious, just briefly, hopefully not to get sidetracked, but, you know, dating back to, yeah, I remember 2017, the open letter with respect to the executive order banning travel for people from, I think, seven Muslim-majority nations and how um, you all organized to come out against that. And and that, like this issue, has a clear, or seems to me, a clear effect on the health of the industry and its need to employ people from around the world, its need to, you know, trust in FDA approval as something that stands up um, for all the things that that means. I was curious, though, how do you frame which societal issues that may have effects on the industry are those that are, that should be addressed in this matter? How do you kind of like draw lines around the many things kind of churning in the world that can and might have effects on biopharma? What might fall out of bounds? And, and how do you kind of strike the balance where you aren't veering into something that might be perceived as partisan or might actually um, you know, be more divisive among the constituency that you're representing than, than unifying?
2: You start with the premise that every business school has now evolved to, which is in the 1960s, you had a simple concept which was shareholder value is the only thing that matters. Today if you were to go into any of the major teaching schools they know that to create value in stocks and shares you must have stakeholder value considered. Now the stakeholders, that's an evolve evolution, it takes time for people to understand that and those stakeholders include multiplicity of entities. It's the patient organizations, it's the public perception of what you're doing. It's the uh, electoral bodies that you have to deal with. It's your own employees and their perception. So it's a very broad set of entities. If you start with that, you then have to define very carefully things that are essentially daggers at the heart of the industry. And you don't try and deviate from that. Daggers at the heart of industry are those things that fundamentally affect our competitiveness, our ability to attract innovation, and the certitude of the strategic steps that you take. It's a very uncertain industry. Drug discovery inherently is fails. We know that the vast majority fails. So as much certitude that you can bring to that, the better it is. And for me, we each have a personal approach to this, but my own personal approach is, given that the United States has built a huge asset, indeed a strategic asset, what is in the national interest of this country to retain? If this is a trivial industry, you shouldn't be doing this fight, this is not. This is a strategic industry. So you have to think a little bit, differently you have to think not only is it an economic industry it's a strategic industry and it's a medical ethics industry and I can assure you there have been many occasions when lots of things have been brought up when those of us who are at the core of trying to infuse this values driven stakeholder approach to shareholder and economic growth that we've simply said we can't we don't want to deal with that not because we don't want to deal with it there may be each one of us is a personal stake, but it is not a dagger in the heart of the industry, and this is. So it's complex, but it does devolve around to that stakeholder concept that I mentioned at the beginning.
0: So returning to this you know specific issue. You know, legal scholars and others who are concerned about this decision on Mifepristone, both because of the precedent it sets for the industry, but also the implications it has for access to medication abortion, are hopeful that the pharmaceutical industry's involvement will bring the heft of the industry's sort of legendary lobbying power. But pharma, the trade group for larger pharmaceutical companies, has not been as aggressive so far in its stance on this decision as bio and others in the industry. Uh, We should note that they did just come out with a blog post about this that is a little bit stronger than we've heard them before. This is on Wednesday. Um, They note they have serious concerns with any court substituting its opinion for the FDA's expert approval decision-making. They say the decision undermines the FDA's longstanding authority given to them by Congress to approve drugs, which would have a chilling effect on the research and development ecosystem. And they end this uh, rather short blog post by saying they'll continue to explore all policy and legal options to ensure the FDA's approval authority is protected. Jeremy, what's your stance on what we've sort of seen from pharma, you know, the the lobbying group pharma so far, and whether this sort of legendary lobbying power uh, of this part of the industry will be wielded here to potentially make a difference?
2: Uh, Make such a good comment. I'm a little surprised, and I think we should all be surprised, that we haven't seen an immediate response from all parties concerned. You have in the vast, the big big companies are already responding. You're going to see the small companies that responded. And then Bio, the industry organization, took a leadership position by immediately filing an amicus brief. Now, I would hope that what we're seeing here is similar to what we saw when we put the request to the large companies, a slower process to get to an amicus brief. I would hope that pharma would step forward and that they would put their heft behind this. They have enormous capability to do so. And if they choose not to, then one has to really question what is their raison d'être? And I just expect that what you're seeing here is a time lag because they have some very substantial companies, all of whom have to agree on what is filed. They're not nimble, they are, they're going to have to get behind this, or they're going to have to bear responsibility for what I think is rather co- troubling. It's quite possible this goes to the Supreme Court, in which case, how the Supreme Court rules will have a fundamental effect on all of their constituent members. And I can't imagine that the leaders of those particular members don't already know. I know, having spoken to many of those leaders, that they do know. So I fully expect them to get behind it.
1: Well, Jeremy, thanks for joining us.
2: Damien, thank you for having me. You guys are dealing with a super important issue. And as I said to you, You and Meg are tackling something now, which I think is, without a doubt, without a doubt, the most important consequential issue to attack the pharma and biotech industry in the last 50 years, without a doubt.
1: That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud.
0: Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
1: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel.
0: And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and who you'd like to see Bernie Sanders haul in front of Congress. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com.
1: And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your
0: podcasts. See you next week.